Chapter 18 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Christine Rucker. November 13, 2021, Westford, Massachusetts. Consuelo by George Sand. Chapter 18. In the midst of the anxieties awakened by the desire of success and by the ardor of Correa, the jealousy of Anzoletto with regard to the Count slumbered. Happily, Consuelo did not need a more watchful or more moral protector. Secure in innocence, she avoided the advances of Zustiniani and kept him at a distance precisely by caring nothing about it. At the end of a fortnight, this Venetian libertine acknowledged that she had none of those worldly passions which led to corruption, though he spared no pains to make them spring up. But even in this respect, he had advanced no further than the first day, and he feared to ruin his hopes by pressing them too openly. Had Anzoletto annoyed him by keeping watch, anger might have caused him to precipitate matters, but Anzoletto left him at perfect liberty. Consuelo distrusted nothing, and he only tried to make himself agreeable, hoping in time to become necessary to her. There was no sort of delicate attentions or refined gallantries that he omitted. Consuelo placed them all to the account of the liberal and elegant manners of his class, united with a love for art and a natural goodness of disposition. She displayed toward him an unfeigned regard a sacred gratitude, while he, happy and yet dissatisfied with this pure-hearted unreserve, began to grow uneasy at the sentiment which he inspired until such period as he might wish to break the ice. While he gave himself up with fear, and yet not without satisfaction to this new feeling, consoling himself a little for his want of success by the opinion which all Venice entertained of his triumph. Correa experienced the same transformation in herself. She loved with ardor, if not with devotion, and her irritable and imperious soul bent beneath the yoke of her young Adonis. It was truly the queen of beauty in love with the beautiful hunter, and for the first time humble and timid before the mortal of her choice. She affected, with a sort of delight, virtues which she did not possess. So true it is that the extinction of self-idolatry in favor of another tends to raise an ennoble were it but for an instant hearts the least susceptible of pure emotions. The emotion which she experienced reacted on her talents, and it was remarked at the theater that she performed pathetic parts more naturally and with greater sensibility. But as her character and the essence of her nature were thus as it seemed inverted, as it required a sort of internal convulsion to effect this change, her bodily strength gave way in the combat, and each day they observed, some with malicious joy, others with serious alarm, the failure of her powers. Her brilliant execution was impeded by shortness of breath and false intonations. The annoyance and terror which she experienced weakened her still further, and at the representation which took place previous to the debut of Consuelo, 
She sang so false and failed in so many brilliant passages that her friends applauded faintly and were soon reduced to silence and consternation by the murmurs of her opponents. At length the great day arrived. The house was filled to suffocation. Correa, attired in black, pale, agitated, more dead than alive, divided between the fear of seeing her lover condemned and her rival triumph, was seated in the recess of her little box in the theater. Crowds of the aristocracy and beauty of Venice, tier above tier, made a brilliant display. The fops were crowded behind the scenes and even in the front of the stage. The lady of the doge took her place along with the great dignitaries of the republic. Porpora directed the orchestra in person, and Count Zustiniani waited at the door of Consuelo's apartment till she had concluded her toilette, while Anzaletto dressed as an antique warrior with all the absurd and lavish ornament of the age, retired behind the scenes to swallow a draught of Cyprus wine in order to restore his courage. The opera was neither of the classic period nor yet the work of an innovator. It was the unknown production of a stranger. To escape the cabals which his own name or that of any other celebrated person would have caused, Porpora, above all things anxious for the success of his pupil, had brought forward Impermnestra, the lyrical production of a young German who had enemies neither in Italy nor elsewhere and who was styled simply Christopher Gluck. When Anzaletto appeared on the stage, a murmur of admiration burst forth. The tenor to whom he succeeded, an admirable singer who had had the imprudence to continue on the boards till his voice became thin and age had changed his looks, was little regretted by an ungrateful public, and the fair sex, who listened oftener with their eyes than with their ears, were delighted to find, in place of a fat elderly man, a fine youth of twenty-four, fresh as a rose, fair as Phoebus, and formed as if Phidias himself had been the artist. A true son of the lagoons, Bianco Crespo Egrasato. He was too much agitated to sing his first air well, but his magnificent voice, his graceful attitudes, and some happy turns sufficed to propitiate the audience and satisfy the ladies. The debutante had great resources. He was applauded threefold and twice brought back before the scenes, according to the custom of Italy and of Venice in particular. Success gave him courage, and when he reappeared with Impermnestra, he was no longer afraid, but all the effect of this scene was for Consuelo. They only saw, only listened to her. They said to each other, Look at her, yes, it is she. Who? The Spaniard? Yes, the debutante, la Monte del Zustiniani. Consuelo entered, self-possessed and serious. Casting her eyes around, she received the plaudits of the spectators with a propriety of manner equally devoid of humility and coquetry, and sang a recitative with so firm a voice, with accents so lofty, and a self-possession so victorious, that cries of admiration from the very first resounded from every part of the theater. Ah, the perfidious creature has deceived me, exclaimed Correa darting a terrible look toward Ansaletto, 
who could not resist raising his eyes to hers with an ill-disguised smile. She threw herself back upon her seat and burst into tears. Consuelo proceeded a little further, while old Lottie was heard muttering with his cracked voice from his corner, Amissimea, questo è un portento. She sang a bravura and was ten times interrupted. They shouted, encore! They recalled her to the stage seven times amid thunders of applause. At length, the furor of Venetia dilettantism displayed itself in all its ridiculous and absurd excess. Why do they cry out thus? said Consuelo as she retired behind the scenes, only to be brought back immediately by the vociferous applause of the pit. One would think that they wished to stone me. From that moment, they paid but a secondary attention to Anzaletto. They received him very well indeed, because they were in a happy vein, but the indulgence with which they passed over the passages in which he failed, without immediately applauding those in which he succeeded, showed him very plainly that however he might please the women, the noisy majority of males held him cheaply and reserved their tempestuous applause for the prima donna. Not one among all those who had come with hostile intentions ventured a murmur, and in truth there were not three among them who could withstand the irresistible inclination to applaud the wonder of the day. The piece had the greatest success. Although it was not listened to, and nobody was occupied with the music in itself, it was quite in the Italian style graceful, touching, and gave no indication of the author of Alcestes and Orpheus. There were not many striking beauties to astonish the audience. After the first act, the German maestro was called for, with Anseletto, the debutante, and Clorinda, who, thanks to the protection of Consuelo, had sung through the second part with a flat voice and an inferior tone, but whose beautiful arms propitiated the spectators. Rosalba, whom she had replaced, being very lean. In the last act, Anzaletto, who secretly watched Correa and perceived her increasing agitation, thought it prudent to seek her in her box, in order to avert any explosion. So soon as she perceived him, she threw herself upon him like a tigress, bestowed several vigorous cuffs, the least of which was so smart as to draw blood, leaving a mark that red and white would not immediately cover. The angry tenor settled matters by a thrust on the breast, which threw the singer gasping into the arms of her sister Rosalba. Wretch! Traitor! she murmured in a choking voice. Your consuelo and you shall perish by my hand! If you make a step, a movement, a single gesture, I will stab you in the face of Venice, replied Anseletto, pale and with clenched teeth, while his faithful knife, which he knew how to use with all the dexterity of a man of the lagoons, gleamed before her eyes. He would do as he says, murmured the terrified Rosalba. Be silent. Let us leave this. We are here in danger of our lives. Although this tragic comic scene had taken place after the manner of the Venetians, in a mysterious and rapid sotto voce, on seeing the debutante pass quickly behind the scenes to regain his box, 
his cheek hidden in his hand, they suspected some petty squabble. The hairdresser was called to adjust the curls of the Grecian prince and to plaster up his wound, related to the whole band of choristers that an enormous cat had sunk her claw into the face of the hero. The aforesaid barber was accustomed to this kind of wounds, and was no new confident of such adventures. The anecdote made the round of the stage, penetrated, no one knew how, into the body of the house, found its way into the orchestra, the boxes, and, with some additions, descended to the pit. They were not yet aware of the position of Anzaletto with regard to Correa, but some had noticed his apparent devotion to Clorinda, and the general report was that the seconda donna, jealous of the prima donna, had just blackened the eye and broken three teeth of the handsomest of tenors. This was sad news for some, but an exquisite bit of scandal for the majority. They wondered if the representation would be put off, or whether the old tenor Stefanini should have to appear, roll in hand, to finish the part. The curtain rose and everything was forgotten on seeing Consuelo appear, calm and sublime, as at the beginning. Although her part was not extremely tragical, she made it so by the power of her acting and the expression of her voice. She called forth tears, and when the tenor reappeared, the slight scratch only excited a smile. But this absurd incident prevented his success from being so brilliant, and all the glory of the evening was reserved for Consuelo, who was applauded to the last with frenzy. After the play, they went to sup at the Palace of Zustiniani, and Anzaletto forgot Correa whom he had shut up in her box, and who was forced to burst it open in order to leave it. In the tumult, which always follows so successful a representation, her retreat was not noticed. But the next day, this broken door coincided so well with the torn face of Anzaletto that the love affair, hitherto so carefully concealed, was made known. Hardly was he seated at the sumptuous banquet which the Count gave in honor of Consuelo, and while all the Venetian dilettanti handed to the triumphant actress sonnets and madrigals composed the evening before, when a valet slipped under his plate a little billet from Correa, which he read aside and which was to the following effect. If you do not come to me this instant, I shall go to seek you openly. Were you even at the end of the world? Were you even at the feet of your consuelo, thrice accursed? Anzaletto pretended to be seized with a fit of coughing, and retired to write an answer with a pencil on a piece of ruled paper, which he had torn in the antechamber of the Count from a music book. Come, if you will. My knife is ready, and with it my scorn and hatred. The despot was well aware that with such a creature fear was the only restraint, that threats were the only expedient at the moment, but in spite of himself he was gloomy and absent during the repast, and as soon as it was over he hurried off to go to Korea. He found the unhappy girl in a truly pitiable condition. Convulsions were followed by torrents of tears. She was seated at the window, her hair disheveled, her eyes swollen with weeping, and her dress disordered. She sent away her sister and maid, 
and in spite of herself, a ray of joy overspread her features at finding herself with him whom she had feared she might never see again. But Anzaletto knew her too well to seek to comfort her. He knew that at the first appearance of pity or repentance, he would see her fury revive and seize upon revenge. He resolved to keep up the appearance of inflexible harshness, and although he was moved with her despair, he overwhelmed her with cruel reproaches, declaring that he was only come to bid her an eternal farewell. He suffered her to throw herself at his feet, to cling by his knees even to the door, and to implore his pardon in the anguish of grief. When he had thus subdued and humbled her, he pretended to be somewhat moved, and promising to return in the morning, he left her. End of chapter 18